Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Welcome back to Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy. This is episode 22, The Seeker Petitions. The grounds for referral to the Court of Appeal explained. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast has been created for an adult audience, so listener discretion is advised. I accept ownership of all thoughts and opinions in this podcast. Some feedback for you. Unfortunately, no one has been able to provide me with the link to Shirley Singh's Facebook page, which was mentioned in my interview with her. The claim Shirley made in the interview that Max Seeker described the cause of death in the television interview are patently inaccurate. That interview you will find on the Facebook page. In a previous episode, I spoke with Sam DiCarlo, the barrister who represented Max Seeker at both his committal hearing and his trial. I have the pleasure of Jeff Johnson joining me on this episode, and some following episodes. You will recall I have mentioned him in the past. He is Max Seeker's solicitor. I could give you details of his extensive background and experience in the law, and how he became involved in the Seeker case, but better you hear it from him direct. Suffice to say, if I was facing a civil or criminal trial, I'd be happy to have Jeff Johnson in my corner. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Let me start by asking you why you have decided to come on to the podcast. When we have discussed it in the past, you have always said you would not speak on the matter publicly. Graham, there's several reasons. Um, I've given it long and detailed consideration, and certainly you're correct. I've always been reluctant previously to do so. However, There is no current matter before the court in respect of the Seeker matter. The reports from media are simply that the petitions have been rejected without explanation. And I felt your listeners and the public generally should know the substantial grounds upon which those petitions were presented. I've been practicing now for 53 years. During that time, I've avoided speaking with media about cases in which I've been involved. It's not something that I ever felt comfortable about. However, my decision has also been influenced by what I see as an increasing tendency to live stream inquests and public inquiries, such as the current inquiry into DNA at the forensic laboratories in Queensland Health, and to correct 
the inaccuracies that I've observed since I was a young lad during the Lindy Chamberlain affair. I don't think that case needs any explanation. I'm pretty sure it's known around the world. Media seem to want to sensationalise and slant reporting of matters in court cases, particularly high-profile court cases that, in my opinion, and it's only my opinion, are more designed to sell newspapers and advertising space than it is to provide the public with an accurate reporting of facts. I think, Jeff, the media are time poor. They're under pressure to get the main points across, to move on to the next story. So they're just focused on a particular point, perhaps even the sensational point of the case in question. And you're right, of course, about the live streaming. Look at the DNA Commission inquiry here. That makes for interesting watching. And in your part of the world, you've got The Lady Vanishes. That's just spectacular. It's one of my favourite podcasts. Watching that witness in the witness box is just incredible television. And listening to the podcast is also very entertaining. Well, that's interesting, Graham, because before the first petition was filed and before I knew or had any involvement with you, I'd been fortunate enough to know Alison Sandy quite well. I spoke to her concerning this matter, and at that stage, she was contemplating that they might do a podcast with respect to the Seeker trial. As your listeners will hear as we get to the substance of the affidavit that supported the first petition, it was Alison that actually pursued some freedom of information matters concerning the secret trial, the results of which were quite handy. I mean, what she's done with the Lady Vanishes podcast is, again, a matter that's influenced me in deciding to come on your podcast. And additionally, what Hedley Thomas has done, both in relation to the teacher's pet and Shandy story, has been spectacular in the results achieved. And it just seems to me, for better or for worse, that's the way which things are heading. The public do have a right to be informed and they have a right to be informed of the facts. Unfortunately, you know, as will be seen from this case, governments are more concerned with covering their tail and denying the provision of facts to the public in circumstances where they should do otherwise. Yes, I couldn't agree more, Jeff. What Alison Sandy has done with The Lady Vanishes is nothing short of spectacular. Fortunate for me, she got tied up in that, and here we are, and I have the privilege of doing the Max Seeker podcast. Well, let me say at this juncture that I've also been impressed with what you've achieved in the Leanne Holland case. I mean... Your podcast and your book obviously was an influencing factor in leading to the Court of Appeal on the second petition, ultimately overturning that conviction. After you contacted me, of course, I took the trouble of listening to that podcast and reading the book, and that was an influencing factor in my agreeing to provide the material that I delivered to you as a starting point. Thanks for that vote of confidence and support, Jeff. Yes, I agree. I believe podcasts are the future. Lady Vanishes, Teacher's Pet, 
Shandy Story are outstanding examples of what can be done with a podcast. And even my co-podcaster, Jamie Pultz, what he did with Beanham Valley Road was just extraordinary. That case had fallen through the cracks of the Queensland Police machine. He promoted it through podcast. They reactivated it. As you know, recently, the ex-boyfriend was arrested for murder. Yeah, we will. You're over 20 episodes into it. You say you were surprised at that, and I must say I was too. I agreed for you to do that from the Seeker point of view because after our initial meeting and discussion, I formed a view that you'd be independent and objective and form your own views, and I respect that. Thank you. Thank you very much, actually. Initially, I thought it would be seven or eight episodes, and here we are at 22, and who knows how many more. Can I just ask you, I'm sure everyone will be keen to hear, how you became involved in the Seeker case. Well, as I said at the outset, I've been practising law since I was 22 years of age. I'm now 76 years of age, so it's been a long journey. During that time, pretty much exclusively been involved in litigation. One would hope that you'd gain some experience over that period of time. I retired a few years back and thereafter acted as a consultant to the firm, providing advice and acting in a couple of specialised matters. In any event, uh, back in 2018, I was contacted by a friend of mine who I hold in very high regard. He had some concerns that had been expressed to him about the way in which the seeker trial had been conducted. Knowing that I had some time on my hands, he asked me whether I'd be prepared to have a look at it. At that stage, I knew nothing of the seeker matter other than what appeared in media reports and perhaps I don't need to say, you know, I take little notice of some of the things that do appear in the media. I might add that plenty of people do take notice of what's in the media. I mentioned it in the podcast. I believed at the time there was hardly a person in Australia who didn't think that Max Seeker wasn't guilty. The media comment on it was actually pretty bad and quite one-sided, I thought. In any event, I uh, I knew none of the parties at that stage. I didn't know Max Seeker. I didn't know the Seeker family. I didn't know the Sings. I didn't know the legal counsel that appeared for both sides of the trial. I did, however, know Justice John Byrne, the trial judge. I'd briefed him when I was a young lawyer in Brisbane and subsequently. Then, after his elevation to the bench, I appeared before him on isolated occasions. I've always held Justice Byrne in the highest of regards. The fact that he was the trial judge created some interest for me as well. Long story short, I agreed to have a look at the transcript and documentation from the trial. That was a task in itself. The committal hearing ran for 90-odd days and the trial for 70-odd days, so it took considerable time to delve into those matters initially. It kept my brain active, and at my age, that's important. I at least decided I should take the matter to a stage where I could form a view or otherwise whether any substantial miscarriage of justice might have occurred in Max Seeker's convictions. Yes, Jeff, I can vouch for the mountain of documents to read, absorb, and understand. And I might add, your understanding of the complexities of this case 
are astonishing, and the work you've done is nothing short of incredible. As I understand it, solicitors are expected to do some pro bono work from time to time. Have you done much pro bono work in your career, Jeff? And anything as complex and as large as the Seeker case? Graham, over that number of years, yes, I have done quite a number of pro bono matters. Um, you know, I had two rules. Number one, people would need to be in a position where they couldn't afford to pay. And number two, their position would have meant that had somebody not taken up their matter, they would have been left without any recourse to seek justice. And so I've done that, but nothing on the scale of the seeker matter, nothing that involved that quantity of transcript and documentation and the requirement to spend thousands of hours in sifting through that to try and come up with an objective and balanced view as to what happened at the trial. Having decided to at least have a look at initially, I, I met with Max Seeker and, and his parents, and I made it very clear at that stage that I'd agree to take the matter to that stage, but that if there was anything I found that convinced me that Max Eker had committed these grotesque murders, I would withdraw my services without further ado. They readily agreed to that condition, and then I set off on looking at the matter. I think you've taken pro bono to the next level, Jeff, with this work you've done on the Seeker case. What I've seen with that Dr. Deflau, the inquiries with Bond University, the Garden Fork, the carpet foot impressions, it's just next level. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, you know, the Seeker family was, as you would appreciate, and I'm sure your listeners would appreciate, after a committal and trial of that extent, even though there was legal aid involved, they were financially stretched. Max Seeker's mother... She continues to this day to live this matter day in and day out. It's taken an intolerable toll on her health. And I felt, at least by having an independent look at the matter, it might assist her in some regard. You can only be impressed by her endeavours and her input throughout the entire process in providing documentation related to what she saw as relevant matters. So anyway... Bottom line is the Seeker family agreed to my condition and I then met with Max Seeker and I started to go through methodically transcript and documentations that were either produced or not produced at trial. It was an exhaustive six-month process. At the end of that time and in future episodes, your listeners will become well acquainted with my reasons. I determined that, in my opinion, there were serious deficiencies in the evidence presented by the prosecution and in the conduct of the Seeker defence at trial and, to some extent, subsequently on appeal. And I felt it warranted further investigation, which might lead to a decision to present a petition for pardon, which was the archaic method of trying to get the Attorney-General to refer the matter to the Court of Appeal for a review. So you reached the conclusion that it needed further investigation. What did you do or where did that take you? At the end of that time, reached the conclusion that there were serious deficiencies and that in my opinion, there may well have been a substantial miscarriage of justice in respect of the trial. I decided it was going to take 
continued countless hours of research and preparation. And before undertaking that, I wanted to test Max Seeker. So I visited Max at Wollstone Park Correctional Facility again. I informed him of the research that I'd conducted to that date and told him that I'd identified what I thought were deficiencies in the trial that I regarded as serious. To say the least, he was relieved and excited that somebody had at least taken the time to review the trial after he has been protesting his innocence consistently over all of that period since the trial. Graham, I'll discuss in detail each of those deficiencies as we go through future podcasts. And I'll do so hopefully with an explanation and the provision of information that it'll make it easy for your listeners to understand the basis and the grounds upon which the petitions were presented. Excellent. I think a lot of people do not have an understanding of the legal aspects of the case, so this may help them immensely. And I'll endeavour to avoid, you know, legalese in those explanations where I can. I think the listeners will be happy with that. Good. You know, as I say, I think they have a right to at least know what I maintained the grounds were that led to the Attorney-General making decisions that, in her words, there were no grounds for referral to the Court of Appeal. Hmm. Your listeners can make up their own minds at the end of these podcasts about that. Sure. Getting back to the test. So I visited Max Seeker, and during the course of our discussion, I simply said to Max, and I quote, I want you to take a lie detector test, close quote. As you might expect, he was a bit taken back because I threw it at him from left field. And that's what I intended. Anyway, he agreed to take the test. And I then set about arranging for an expert who was ex-FBI from Melbourne to travel to Brisbane to conduct that test. I went through the process of obtaining approval from the prison authorities at Wollstone Park, and those approvals are in writing for that test to be conducted at the correctional facility. Max Seeker's family paid the airfares for the expert to attend and all was in place for the lie detector test to be conducted. And then Ray Hadley, uh, a radio personality from Sydney, apparently went ballistic on air about Max Seeker being permitted to take the test. How did Ray Hadley find out about that? And Ray, of course, is an old law and order man. Mate, as you would expect, once I'd arranged it, I'm sure that there was a leak from the prison that Max Seeker was to take a lie detector test. There was some short publicity on one of the media outlets about that going to take place. Mr Hadley didn't bother to speak to me, apparently spoke to others who seemed to like to make themselves available to media outlets to comment. Those people helpfully pointed out there was High Court authority to prevent the use of lie detector tests in court. One might be surprised, but I knew of that. (laughs) And that never was my intention. I never intended to try to use it in the petition or in any subsequent court proceedings because I knew it was not allowed. I was simply testing Max Seeker. I wanted to know whether he'd agree to take a lie detector test. Anyway... Mr Hadley, during his statement on radio, 
said that the solution was that he would contact some Queensland government minister that he'd recently met to have the test stopped. The very next day, I received emails from prison authorities then refusing to allow Max Seeker to take the test. The basis upon which that refusal was put in place was not on its face anything to do with Mr Hadley, but I'm sorry, I don't believe in coincidences, not to that extent anyway. Mr Hadley boasted that he would have it stopped, that it was stopped. It wasn't my preference. Matt Seeker had agreed to take the lie detector test, so on that basis I concluded that he passed the test and I would continue toward determining whether a petition for pardon was the appropriate course. Ah, very interesting. Thanks, Jeff. I'd like to ask you about the DNA evidence, Jeff. We've discussed it from time to time and the problems you've had with Queensland Health and the pushback you've received from Queensland Health. Can you just give us an overview of how the DNA evidence impacts on the Seeker case and whether the current DNA inquiry in Brisbane impacts on the Seeker case? You know, as listeners who may be following the live stream would know, the Commissioner currently has been involved in public hearings relative to 2018 to the current time, and obviously that's well after Max Seeker's trial. That being said, and I think you have told your listeners about this previously, since 2019 I've been corresponding with Queensland Health to obtain notes, documents and information required by a forensic scientist employed by the Seeker family. I've also provided copies of that correspondence and correspondence itself to the Attorney-General, but without result. They have simply said they were seeking legal instructions, ignored my requests, but the bottom line is nothing's been forthcoming. Yes, an amazing situation. Two things arise, well, maybe more than two things, but what arises out of that is this. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Firstly... Max Seeker has always said to me he would not be looking to restrict my inquiries in any direction, and nor would I have accepted any such instructions from him. He readily agreed to my raising issues relating to the DNA because, as he said to me, Jeff, I didn't commit these murders, so I've got nothing to fear from DNA evidence. There was a vast number of DNA tests that came back insufficient material or insufficient evidence of DNA, and it related to a number of matters, two of which I'll just briefly refer to now. One was the garden fork. On the handle of the garden fork, there appears to be DNA that is said not to be Max Seekers, but insufficient to identify who it might have been. That, of course, assumes that you accept the garden fork was the murder weapon, and I'm quite happy to state publicly I do not accept that proposition. Well, I know you've had your say, and we'll get to that in the course of future podcasts. 
finding a so-called weapon in such a prominent position after 15 days with the involvement of seven scientific officers and others in the search tends to defy the imagination. Anyway, I'll deal with that in more detail at a later point in time. Yes, I look forward to discussing the Garden Fork with you in depth at a more appropriate time. Yeah, second issue, and perhaps this is not so obvious, you'll recall that evidence was given of the appearance of this blackened footprint on carpet at the bottom of the stairs. You have done outstanding work in relation to that carpet and those footprints, Jeff Johnson. Thank you, and I'll go into that in some detail later too. The actual first footprint that was uncovered, the significant footprint, if I may put it in those terms, never ever, as far as I can recall or have found, was subjected to DNA testing. And it's interesting to note that the scientists who gave evidence in respect of testing for chlorine and bleach in other footprints made the statement to the court that he was never allowed anywhere near impression number one. Go into greater detail that becomes a relevant issue with respect to DNA testing as well. Do we know why that scientist was not allowed anywhere near Impression 1? It seems rather bizarre. No, and the judge makes comment on that and is summing up, and again, I'll take your listeners to that in due course. And just while we're on that, Jeff, I noted that one of the scientists suspended during the DNA inquiry was the scientist who gave evidence at the Max Seeker trial. Justin Howes. Graham, just to rectify that to some extent, initially testing was done by other people. Justin Howes, before the trial, does other testing, and he's the person that gives evidence before the court. I think it's best to wait for a more detailed podcast when we have time to devote to just DNA testing to expand on that. But the important aspect is this. And this is why it's difficult to understand why my correspondence is simply deflected or ignored. You know, and it's obvious from the inquiry. I mean, different systems relating to DNA testing now allow for much more extensive DNA testing. Why would forensics and the government be reluctant to allow, not at their cost, further DNA testing of matters which revealed nothing back during the trial and during that time subsequent to the murders. Exactly. When those better systems are now available. There seems no rhyme nor reason as to why they wouldn't agree to that. And in fact, let me just add, there's provisions in our law, and again I'll deal with it in more detail later, which require ongoing disclosure of matters relating exculpatory matters, matters that might tend to show that Max Seeker didn't commit these murders, and they're ongoing while ever Max Seeker is still alive, okay? So basically you're saying the Queensland Health Department and the Attorney-General are ignoring you and ignoring the law. Well, they're certainly ignoring me, uh, and I've written to the DPP and the Attorney-General and the Crown Law pointing out the provision relating ongoing disclosure exists. I mean, there's one other aspect to that. There was a, there were a couple of unidentified fingerprints, yes. uh, and they're still unidentified to this day. One would think there might be an obligation to check those fingerprints to see whether anybody's appeared on databases in the, the 10 years since Max Seeger's convictions. I'm just ignored, and there's no cooperation and no discussion coming from the Attorney-General or those that advise her. Jeff. 
Can you tell us about the petition, please, that you presented to the Governor-General for a pardon for Max Seeker? All your listeners at this stage would know is what the media reported, and that is that the petitions have been refused. What they probably won't understand at this stage, the current legal position in Queensland is that the Attorney-General has basically an unfettered discretion to refuse to refer those petitions to the Court of Appeal, that she doesn't have to provide any reasons for doing so, and perhaps more importantly from a lawyer's point of view, there is no judicial review currently available to challenge those decisions. Now, what that means, Graham, as I see it, and others may have different opinions, is that once you get past an appeal process, if evidence then comes out of the woodwork, evidence has been manufactured, the court has been misled with respect to the giving of evidence, other evidence, fresh evidence arises which tends to be exculpatory, any appeal to the Attorney-General that's generated by a petition for pardon is likely to be simply refused because there's no accountability or transparency. She doesn't have to give reasons and she doesn't have to account for her refusal in a court of law. Let me see if I've got this correct. Where you have a case that is potentially a miscarriage of justice, the merits or otherwise of that case are not considered by a court, but by a politician? That's generally true. You know, it's the decision of the Attorney-General. Well, the Attorney-General, very impressive name, but the Attorney-General's a politician, elected by public, and yet the Attorney-General is not required to keep the public advised with respect to decisions she makes that might impact on the very justice system in Queensland that she's supposed to head up. I find that somewhat astounding, but that's just me. Let me say this. There are other jurisdictions which, as I see it, have taken those decisions out of political hands and have vested those decisions in tribunals of people who could look at the matter independently and decide whether on the face of the uh, submissions there are grounds to refer to the Court of Appeal in various jurisdictions for review, but that does not exist in Queensland. Hopefully, at some stage, the legal profession as a whole may put pressure on the government to make those decisions independent rather than perhaps being driven by political considerations rather than legal considerations. I couldn't agree more for a long time, and particularly after the mess that is the Leanne Holland murder, I've been an advocate for a CCRC, a Criminal Cases Review Commission. Yep. In cases like this, you have to take those sort of matters out of the hands of politicians who are just focused on the next election and put them in the hands of an independent parties who can assess the merit of the case based on the evidence. The UK has had CCRC for many, many years, and now Canada has it, New Zealand has it, and really, it's about time Australia did. Yeah, and let me say, you know, again, in a future episode, I'll deal with it in a little more detail, because there was a decision in August of 2020, and it had great relevance to the rejection of the first petition. 
that decision was in a matter of Holzinger versus the Attorney General of Queensland. You know, I'll give people no reference to that so they can read the case for themselves if they're interested. And I'm not being critical of the Court of Appeal with respect to the content of the decision. It may very well be that what was said by the Court of Appeal is correct from a purely legal point of view. That's not for me to decide, and it may be the High Court might become involved and decide that in, at some stage in the future. But what it did, as I've said, was leave the current state of law in Queensland in a situation where the Attorney-General can basically refuse to refer for any reason that she sees fit. She doesn't need to give reasons for that decision to refuse to refer, and judicial review is not available to check her decision, leading a person who might have suffered a very substantial miscarriage of justice in a situation where they've nowhere to go. Have you attempted to discuss the conviction of Max Seeker with the Attorney-General at all? A number of times. I mean, I took advice from other members of the legal profession during the course of preparing petitions and the like, people that I've known over the years for whom I have a great deal of respect. And some of that advice was, Jeff, you need to liaise with the Attorney General and those advising her and tell them that you'd like to come and talk to them about this matter because when they hear the grounds from you, rather than reading it on paper, it increases in its effect. From a very early point in time, I raised in writing my availability to meet with the Attorney-General or those advising her to discuss the contents of the petition, or alternatively, if they had any questions concerning those grounds, to reach out to me, and I would certainly answer those questions. If they had any evidence or information which countered the grounds that I'd raised in the petition and supporting affidavits, please advise me so that I can take that into account in considering where this matter might go. No response. No effort to do that. There's been no discussion. I've never spoken to the Attorney-General. I've certainly spoken to those advising in Crown Law, but not in respect of any substance as regards the grounds of the petition. They don't want to discuss it. I think I know why, Jeff. I don't understand the downside of that. I mean, those discussions could be confidential. There's no reason for them to be published, you know, unless it was required. If they had actual evidence, irrefutable evidence that Maxika committed these murders, why not tell me? Why not reach out and have those discussions? Maybe I'm oversimplifying the matter, but that's my view. Interesting, Jeff. Interesting. You mentioned that you had a 53-year law career. I wonder if you could give us some more details of that. Yeah. The bulk of that time, I've always done litigation work. I've done a number of what you'd call, you know, long and complicated cases during that period of time where I've instructed counsel and in some instances made appearances myself. I did a large case in the Solomon Islands where I was admitted as a barrister for the purposes of running a complicated judicial review matter arising out of mining prospects in the Solomon Islands. You didn't come across Joe Cool while you're over there, did you? I didn't, but, you know, I found your podcast very interesting considering what you found out. 
there's lots of stories out of the Solomon Islands. Anyway, I can understand your listeners might like to at least know that my experience over those years allows me to be independent and objective in presenting the petitions on behalf of Max Seeker and in participating in this podcast. And one thing I learned over those years is the importance of documentation in respect of litigation. Generally, if you want to check what a person is saying in evidence verbally, if you've got a document, it's sometimes amazing what those documents reveal. I couldn't agree more with that, Jeff. At times, I've compared the Seeker case with the Holland case, and there are actually a lot of similarities with it. And I'm currently scripting my next episode, and it just happens that I'm talking about that exact subject where there's a witness who can be corroborated by the paperwork that she had. Yeah, just a couple of instances. Uh, back in the 80s, I was uh, involved in instructing Mr. Frank Connolly of counsel in the trial of Brian Maher for tax fraud. That case went for six months from memory. It involved thousands and thousands and thousands of documents. Mr Connolly was a grand old barrister who only specialised in, in criminal law. He uh, admittedly didn't have any background in commercial litigation that I was aware of, and so he, he agreed to rely on me with respect to the cross-examination of the some 40 accountancy witnesses during that trial, and I was directly involved in drafting submissions on various matters during the course of that trial. During my 53 years, I've had three High Court appeals, and my firm instructed in the last case taken to the Privy Council in London before the Privy Council got to the stage of not hearing further appeals from Australia. One of those High Court appeals was in connection with the Mar trial. The defendants in that trial were only ever convicted of two of the 23 charges brought by the Crown, and the High Court ultimately overturned the conviction in respect of Ma on one of those charges. So as I say, I learnt the importance of conducting litigation where there is voluminous documentation, and the importance of taking the trouble to examine that documentation and not just put it to one side. Just one further example of the ramifications of, of relating to the documentation. Some years back, I was referred a client who had a settlement of property matter before the family court. Over the years, I've tended to avoid the family court if at all possible, but I have done two or three cases of some significance before that court. This was a case where settlement of property matters, this woman had been to three or four family law firms, and she was advised that the only identifiable asset appeared to be the matrimonial home and that she should pay her husband $100,000 and have him transfer the house, which was the substance of his offer. She was convinced that the husband was hiding assets, and she was referred to me by somebody for whom I'd done a civil litigation as being perhaps somebody who could look at the commercial side of things and source whether or not there were hidden assets. The principal situation was that there was a large 
industrial complex that had been built that she was convinced was owned by the husband, but that was denied by him. Anyway, long story short, I did a search of the title deed and found it was in the name of the company and then did a search of the company and found that the company was owned by and the directors of that company were the husband's long-term secretary and her son. But in addition, I found that there was a mortgage registered on the title deed with a bank. I'm sure probably most of you listeners know that if you go to the bank to arrange a loan, the bank manager generally takes notes and records details of the application for the funding from the bank. So I made application to the family court for what's called third-party disclosure against the bank, and the family court granted that application. Lo and behold, we get the notes from the bank manager. A significant note said, I'm advised by the husband. She has arranged for the title deed to be put into the name of the company, and the company is controlled by his secretary and her son. But he's done that because of the family court proceedings being brought by his wife for settlement of property. And once those family court proceedings are concluded, he will arrange for the property to be transferred back to his control. Full stop. You can imagine that put the cat amongst the pigeons. All I can say is that my client out of that, because of those documents, received a settlement well in excess of a million dollars rather than the $100,000 that she was being told to pay him for a transfer of the matrimonial home. Good job, Jeff. I'm only raising that just to show that the documents in the Seeker case are really important, and that will become more evident as we proceed with future podcasts. Well, thanks, Jeff. I think we've covered all the subjects that we aim to talk about today, and as you've said, we can pick this conversation up next time. Thank you. Yeah, okay, well, we've made a start. Hopefully your listeners will find it informative and at least get a balanced view as to what grounds were raised with respect to the petitions that were simply dismissed by the Attorney-General. That's it for Episode 22, The Seeker Petitions, explaining the grounds requiring referral to the Court of Appeal. Please join us in the next episode where we continue to explore the legal ramifications of convictions and attempts to have the matters dealt with by the Court of Appeal. Jeff is going to discuss why the Attorney-General should be referring matters to the Court of Appeal for review. If you follow the podcast, you will be advised when a further episode is released. Please rate and review the podcast for me if you can. It does help spread the story. If you like the podcast, please tell your family and friends. If you have questions, information or feedback, you can contact me via the Facebook page, which is Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy. My email address is looseends2003 at outlook.com. This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAST Creator Network, Music Before I Go by RKVC. You'll find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. Thanks again for listening.